You're listening to a podcast from BJSM. I'm with Winner May Wissa, and he's very well known internationally, of course, and a professor at the University of Calgary. His formal affiliation there is at the Sport Injury Prevention Research Centre, which has done tremendous work across a range of uh, sports and injuries. But we're going to be talking about concussion today, and his role in Calgary in concussion is as part of the Brain Injury Initiative, which is at the Hotchkiss Brain Institute. Winner, thanks for joining this podcast and sharing your wisdom with listeners all around the world. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Now, congratulations on the work that you and Paul McCrory did on the consensus statement and the whole Zurich conference that's published in BJSM, obviously, and also in the Clinical Journal of Sport Medicine, where you contributed for 12 years as the editor-in-chief. Your own work has done a lot relating to um, helmets and visors in the sport of hockey, and you were the doctor for NHL, you consultant for NHL. What were some of the key things that you think listeners need to know that we can learn from your NHL experience? You know, the work that we've done with our Sport Injury Prevention Research Centre that has been driven to a large extent by, by uh, my co-chair, Carolyn Emery, uh, looked at this whole issue of, uh, of body checking, and um, which has been pretty a pretty passionate debate in Canada. And then we've also done work within the varsity athlete population on, on different kinds of facial protection and um, found some pretty interesting differences um, there in terms of whether people wear a half visor, which just sort of covers the eyes and part of the nose, versus a full face protection. Uh, and uh, in that particular study in the varsity athletes, we saw that, you know, obviously there was a difference in, in facial injuries just because more of the face is protected. but more interestingly, with the concussion, that the severity of injury was was less with full face protection. Uh, so there seems to be some brain protection that comes from protecting the face better. And uh, and some of the debate has been around whether putting more protection on actually will then makes the game more dangerous. Do you have more penalties? Do you get other injuries? Do you get neck injuries and so on? So we looked at that as well and found out that there was really no downside that we did not see increases in aggressive play or dangerous play or penalties or neck injuries. So so wearing more facial protection, at least in the sport of ice hockey, um, has an upside without a downside. So for clinicians who are in a position to try to influence behaviour at hockey, you'd suggest the full face visor? Yeah. And, that, and the full face visor or protection, um, whether it's a shield or um, you know, of uh, plexi material or, or cage, uh, is mandatory certainly in the minor hockey leagues, but and once you start getting up into the the more uh, elite leagues, then less protection becomes mandatory. And at the NHL level, um, even that's different because in the minor professional leagues, the visor is mandatory. At the NHL, it's not mandated. What's interesting is the work that we do with the NHL is we're tracking the use of equipment over time, and what we're seeing is about uh, a five percent per year increase in the number of NHL players wearing visors, so they don't have to wear any facial protection, and historically, you know, they most didn't. Now we're looking at over 70% of NHL players where it's optional, choose to wear uh, a visor. That's very interesting. And can you see some pressure coming to NHL if media and journals maybe promote this issue even more, come out with strong messages that we'd like to see that go up to 100% of full face protection? Do you think we can make a difference? Um, well, I guess the question is what what protection does it offer at that elite level? Uh, because I think 
you know, if you extrapolate the information we have on, on protecting the eyes and the face, and, you know, one of the pioneers in that whole area was Tom Pashby in, in Canada, who, you know, now has uh, started a sports safety fund and um, was really uh, the person that, that drove that movie, even within minor hockey, and then led to the adoption of better facial protection across the country. Um, there's very clear evidence that visors protect against facial injury. We don't know if they protect against concussion in the same way that mouth guards is another debate. Well, the, you know, there's lots of marketing material that says mouth guards prevent concussion. Well, there's actually no clinical evidence that they do. I mean, you can take somebody in a laboratory, put a mouth guard in and show that it would change the mechanics, but there's no study that says if you put a mouth guard in an, a real human being playing a sport, that it actually reduces concussion risk. It definitely reduces the risk of, of oral and dental injury. So they are beneficial and should be worn to protect the mouth and face, teeth, etc. But um, <clears throat> it's not that putting a mouth guard in is going to prevent you from getting a concussion. So I think when you start looking at pieces of safety equipment, um, we know visors and facial protection prevent facial injuries. We know dental protection prevents dental injuries. Um, and for that reason alone, there's justification to wear that kind of protective equipment. But if people think that putting on facial protection and putting on a mouth guard is going to prevent them from getting a concussion, I don't think that's necessarily the case. At least we've not been able to measure that so far. But just um, clarify for me, at the beginning, I thought you did allude to the fact that there was some link between the helmets and the severity of concussions. Just right. So that, that study was the one of the first ones we did that we published in JAMA um, in '99. So that's going way back now. Uh, and that did show that full face protection reduced the severity of concussion measured by time loss. So the number of concussions was the same. So they still were getting concussions, but the time loss before people were back to play again, which is probably a pretty good measure of severity, uh, that was actually better with full face protection. And congratulations on that winner. That was a, a landmark paper, and uh, it's always a great effort to see sports medicine papers in JAMA and uh, BMJ and journals like that. So let's talk about this checking in kids because uh, a lot of parents listen and um, we're all in position of advocating for, for health in kids. So just take us through the story of what you've discovered about checking in hockey. And we're cool that many of these things we're talking about today affect um, Canada and um, play countries where they play hockey. And uh, it's great to have you on the podcast. So tell us about the checking issue. Winner. Well, for our international audience, we're talking about ice hockey, correct? Not hockey. <laughs> um, so, so the debate there, uh, which is pretty passionate, is, is, uh, is around the question of body checking. And body checking is an integral part um, of the, the traditional game of, of ice hockey. And <clears throat> the question is, well, if that's an important part of the game in terms of how it's played, at what age should kids begin body checking? And, and some people believe they should do it from the beginning of playing, so that's a part of their skill development right from the time they learn to skate. Um, and that it's in fact dangerous to introduce it later when they're bigger and stronger, can go faster, and, and uh, maybe are at an age where there's a little more testosterone and they want to hit each other, especially in the boys' leagues. But um, there is a policy, uh, at least in Canada, around the earliest age at which you can introduce that. So currently, uh, that's in the peewee uh, age group, which is age 11 and 12. And then other other um, rules or policies are in place provincially uh, about changing that age group. So the, so the minimum is 11, 12, but some provinces uh, started in Bantam, which is age 13, 14. 
So we had a, an opportunity to do sort of a natural experiment as a national study comparing uh, Alberta to Quebec. In the province of Alberta, they start body checking at age 11, 12 peewee, and in Quebec they start at age 13, 14. And otherwise the leagues are, are the same, they're similar in every other respect, so it's a pretty good comparison group. And what we found um, with this national study uh, was that the risk of injury was three times higher and the risk of concussion was four times higher if you institute body checking in the peewee group. So this is comparing peewee to peewee. Uh, so that was a pretty dramatic uh, difference. Um, and there's been some uh, evidence in the research literature uh, with, with weaker study designs that have suggested the same thing, but this was the first uh, full-scale uh, cohort type study that, that really measured it as, as precisely with therapists dedicated teams so we're sure we measured everything and it was a it was a great collaboration with the people at, at McGill um, and Laval universities uh, in Quebec so that information you know was really useful but then the, the pushback that we had in terms of the hockey community was well okay that's fine but um, if they start body checking in Bantam when there are even larger body size differences and and probably more maturity differences amongst the players, it's just going to be worse. So it helps to have body checking experience was what people thought. And what's the and what's the age group for Bantam? So Bantam's 11, oh, sorry, they're the 13, 14, so they're slightly older. So we did a follow-up study uh, to look at that question. So if we now, now that we've shown that there's a difference between those 11, 12 year olds, uh, if we then look at 13 and 14 year olds where they have had experience in body checking, i.e. Alberta, because they've already been body checking for two years, and compare that to Quebec again, where they're just beginning to body check at 13, 14. And there was no difference in injury rate in terms of numbers of injuries, numbers of concussions. Um, there was a slight difference in, in some of the injuries in overall in terms of the severity. but. But if you look at the bigger picture, um, there really there is no protective effect of having had experience. Uh, in fact, you wonder whether some of the people who were injured in, in, in the younger group never continued on. So I think that sort of has answered this debate. Uh, we've got a couple of other follow-up studies that are just uh, going to be published shortly looking at the cost um, of the injuries and the numbers. Uh, in terms of healthcare costs that are attributed to this increased in injury number, given the number of participants. And that's actually in interestingly led to policy change in the US. So USA Hockey, on the basis of this evidence, has changed their policy and they now do not have body checking in Peewee any longer. But in the country in which the research was done, uh, there's not been a change yet. Uh, it's still a very passionate debate uh, and we'll be having a um, an actual session uh, in conjunction with the Canadian Academy of Sport and Medicine meeting in Whistler coming up in April involving all the stakeholders and policy and decision makers um, to actually have a roundtable discussion on this topic about you know at what level should a decision be made uh, because you have different jurisdictions so Hockey Canada oversees the country um, the provinces you have each have their own governing body and then the cities have, and the regions have their own governing bodies that report up to the provinces. So it's a question of whether, you, whether if you're talking about knowledge translation and policy change, is this something that should be a top-down approach where the, where the national organization just mandates it? Or should, should these sporting organizations listen to their constituents and therefore 
if that's the way it should be, then, then you have to drive it from the bottom up. So you have to get the cities and the regions to agree so that they can convince the provinces and the provinces can then convince the National Association. And, and there's a bit of to and fro in this debate right now in terms of, well, who's actually going to make the decision? You know, at what level is that going to be done? Is it going to be done top down or bottom up? And that really hasn't been sorted out yet. So hopefully we can get some answers on that when we have this, uh, this session in, uh, in April. Terrific, and that is the Canadian Academy of Sport and Exercise Medicine meeting in uh, Whistler, Vancouver in April of 2013. Winner, just on the Americans, uh, our US colleagues, I presume that was driven top down when they changed policy? They did, yeah. So that was through USA Hockey. And in relation to the local communities, you told an interesting story in your grand rounds here in Doha, Aspatar, which is one of the hubs of sports medicine, um, that the parents did not want to avoid checking in this uh, peewee group. Can you just clarify that for us? It seems strange. Um, it, it may seem strange, but I think the way that it's been approached to date is that um, it is the grassroots level that the organizations are looking for uh, a mandate from because they feel that um, you know, Hockey Canada uh, needs to listen to its constituents who are the provinces. The provinces need to listen to their constituents who are the regions and the cities, and the cities need to listen to their constituents who are the, who are the communities. And so it's the community who makes the decision. So while that's admirable um, and, and may be correct, I mean, I think you can debate this, um, you know, to what extent should we be authoritarian in how we how we manage risk in our country. I mean, it's, a, it's almost a cultural question and a sociologic question, much more than it is a sport or a medicine question. But the difficulty is that that uh, you can make a pretty good case that the, the parents in the communities may not be the best informed. And so, you know, uh, I can't tell you the number of presentations that Carolyn made and others in our group made to the different community groups in order to inform them of the evidence. And I think they were informed of the evidence, but, but sadly, the evidence didn't carry the, the day. Uh, the people still decided on the basis of their own bias and opinions. Um, and, and maybe they took the evidence into consideration. I'm sure they did. But it didn't, it didn't, um, it didn't change their minds. And, and that's a bit, um, in a way, it's a bit surprising or a bit discouraging that I mean, here we have this fantastic research evidence. I'm not biased at all in saying that because we did the work, but uh, but it's but you can't get much better evidence than that. It's very compelling. It's well done and it's scientifically valid. And the differences we found were huge. And we're talking 400 concussions per year in the province of Alberta, which is a population of three million, and that's a large number in kids with developing brains. And so I think it's inexcusable. But um, you know things take time, and I think our experience so far has been that. It's better to work with people than against them, and um, you know I, I think this will change, but it's just not changing immediately. And you, you estimate that you would prevent 400 concussions uh, if the rules were changed yeah. a year in yeah. Alberta. And uh, our listeners may want to look at the uh, listen to the, the Dan Heath podcast about behaviour change because you're saying that the evidence isn't carrying the day here. And Dan Heath, of course, argues that we need to change opinion with emotion and stories. Um, but tell us, just to clarify for me why a parent, if he or she was told that the child had a greater risk of concussion, wouldn't think that that was compelling. I mean, why don't they get it? Well, you know, you mentioned Dan Heath's work. I mean, it, I think that's that's very true, and that's probably where our group 
you know, can do a better job. And, and that's actually, you know, we, we look at things scientifically and epidemiologically, and so we look at rate ratio differences and risk differences and confidence intervals, and, and, um, and, and we actually have moved in some of the stuff that we were putting out from this, have moved away from, from statistical terms to, um, you know, so attributable risk would be, instead of saying your risk of concussion is four times higher, it's, it's easy enough for a parent who feels passionate about their kid becoming an elite player to say, well, that's fine, it's just a risk, you know, whatever. So it's driving down, you know, so it's getting in your car every day. But if you say, that's actually 400 more kids per year, like children, your children, other right. people's children, and that number is a large number, and then people think, well, that's actually a lot, and it's not a huge province. So that, that has a bit more impact, and it starts, it starts to get at this issue of, of telling a story because it, then it becomes a little bit more real. It's like that, that means there's this many in, in our city and that means that you know we had a 15% concussion rate um, in the last year that we did the study and I think part of that you know is, is awareness but that's per team per year in 11 to 12 year olds so that means that in your team of 20 something kids you know do the math right you're gonna have three kids a year that are going to have a concussion on your team. Right. So that starts to become a lot more real because it's either your kid or a kid you know. Uh, and and that that's starting to become a lot more evident to people that are around the game. And um, and I think that's going to that's why I think it is going to change because if, if they have a personal experience with it and they know what the evidence is, it's those two things together that's going to produce change. It does flow nicely into the issue of whether people think concussion is a serious injury because that has, that's part of the equation. And uh, is it just a transient thing you get over then? Maybe it doesn't matter so much about your child. So in the broader picture, do you think there is a change in how people perceive concussion? There is, but it's a double-edged sword um, because I think there's, there's two important messages. One message is that you know, any kind of minimal injury is not just minimal and it actually is a concussion and you need to pay attention to it. And that's one of the principles that has come out of the, the Zurich statement is that we set out to answer these 12 questions at the beginning of the Zurich process, the consensus process. And the first question is, what, what's the minimum threshold to diagnose a concussion? And, and the answer is, there's no minimal threshold. And the second concept or construct is that it's an evolving injury. So the reason there's no minimum threshold is that what you see in the first few minutes following a concussion is different than what it manifests like in an hour or six hours or 24 hours. And so any any minor ding should be a paid attention to, and I think that's an important message. You shouldn't just you know, ignore the injury. That's one side of it. The other side of it, though, is that um, this is an injury that, that managed properly, you do recover fully from. Uh, and it's important to avoid re-injury, especially in the short term. But there's probably too much fear around the issue of chronic changes because uh, some of the debate around this chronic traumatic encephalopathy uh, or dementia related to concussion is, is still a pretty heated debate. There's clearly a set of people who get long-term problems. But we should not be putting out the message that every kid who gets one minor ding is going to have, you know, dementia and become suicidal later in life because that's that's not the case. If that were the case, then every former athlete would be going through that kind of thing, and that's nowhere. That, that's there's no, no there's no truth or, or or merit to that argument. So, so I don't think we should be. I think we should be taking concussions seriously, and minor injuries are not just 
to be ignored. They're to be taken seriously and managed properly. But the fear of this injury should not keep keep people away from playing sport because the, the health benefits of being active you know, and the sociologic benefits of being in, in, in sport, especially as, as a developing human being, and the health aspects that are long-lasting of having a, an active lifestyle um, far outweigh, I think, any long-term risks of concussion. So in balance, we should be continuing to promote kids playing sports and continue to play contact sports, but they have to do it smartly. And there are aspects of, of the injury that can be prevented, and we should do those things. Uh, so that kids can play safely and continue to play. And Winnie, you're a tremendous champion of prevention and you've made a fantastic contribution personally and in collaboration with other leaders in the field. Let's move to treatment of concussion, which is an emerging um, issue. And in the previous concussion consensus, there was this issue of cognitive rest. And that was a challenge for some people because you weren't allowed to sleep, you weren't allowed to watch television, you weren't allowed to read. It was it seemed pretty tricky. So. What happened in Zurich in November and what does the new consensus statement say about that issue and then we'll move into other treatments yeah. as well. So so I think one thing that became pretty clear and I hope a concept that, that's that's clear in the actual, you know, if you read the statement, is in the previous, um, so predating this last consensus, the, the treatment was basically rest and the rest should be physical and the rest should be cognitive so you should not sit at home from school or from work and play video games all day because that does not rest your brain. Um, so, so one thing that's been re-emphasized in this is that is that how you cognitively rest is important. So kids probably should stay home from school, but only for a short period of time. And you should do things that, that don't, the bottom line is do things that don't provoke any symptoms. So you don't want to sit in a dark room with the curtains drawn and lay in bed because that doesn't do anybody any good. You wouldn't feel very good if you did that even if you were healthy but you don't want to do things that overstimulate the brain. And then the second thing that's, that's important that you alluded to is, is, um, is that there's, there's, a, there's a time frame to that that actually ends. So that physical cognitive rest is very important in the initial week to 10 days after the injury, at which time about 70% of people are going to be fully recovered and better and over the concussion and can start to ease back into things again. So that's the majority. And, and that covers off, as I said, 70% of people. The other concept that's come out of the concussion statement, uh, consensus statement, is that if you are one of the people who are not better at 10 days, then more rest is not necessarily the answer anymore. Because if we look at the neuroplasticity um, and, and the, the, the effects of exercise and other things on the brain, doing that early and over overtaxing the brain early on in the first week or 10 days is not good. Therefore, rest is the answer. After 10 days, there's some evidence, at least in the animal literature, that stimulating the brain in some way, be it with exercise or other things, is actually enhances neuroplasticity and therefore should enhance recovery. So there's a clear shifting of gears around this 10-day mark that if you're into 30% of people that are not better at 10 days, then, then things change. So it looks like exercise is good for your brain if applied at the right time. And obviously there's a body of work showing that not in the concussion setting, but it just in exercise generally, it really does a lot for brain and brain function that probably has been under explored. I mean, do you want to just give our listeners who aren't expert in brain function a little taste of the fact that you can improve brain function in adult life and in older life? Is that something that you could share with us? 
Well, the you know, there, there, as you basically said, there's a lot of benefits um, in in brain function that can be measured in a number of different ways, from mood to concentration to affect and other things that that um, you know if you compare people who are regularly physically active to those who are not, or even giving exercise therapy to people, that there's 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 cognitive benefits to that. So if you translate that into the concussion field. It makes sense that it should enhance recovery in some way. Um, the important message being that there's a time and place for it. And in the previous con consensus statements, it was basically rest all the way through. And if you're not better in 10 days or a month, just continue to rest. And I think there's some emerging evidence. It's very preliminary in terms of the actual research evidence in sport-related concussion that that exercise or other forms of therapy, which we can talk about in a minute, actually are, are, are beneficial. And, uh, and the principle, at least with exercise, in people who have prolonged recovery is that it should be done at a, at a sub-symptom threshold level. So for example, if when you exercise you get a headache or get dizzy or nauseated or so on, uh, that, that you, should, uh, you should only do that at a level below what may provoke your symptoms and that may be beneficial. Before we touch on those new treatments, on this issue of exercise, I just want to add the progression because that's something that's very interesting for people progressing someone back. And you touch on it in the guidelines, but just you know, give listeners um, a couple of your tips because you've had so much experience in this field, Winner, it'd be fantastic to hear from you. What do you think about when you're progressing? So let's say the person is uh, symptom-free after seven or eight days and it's seeming like a relatively straightforward concussion, if we can put that uh, in quotation marks, and we say it's the first time. So it's one of those best case scenarios. Mm. What should the clinician be advising and watching for in the progression of return to sport, let's say uh, football? So I think uh, you're talking about real football, not American football. Or, yeah, um, it's for our international audience, you know, trying not to be too Canadian. Um, so First, first thing is, is I think it's important to, to put a stake in the sand and say that, that this issue of recovery is, needs to be made as a clinical decision by a physician. That, that first of all, that not just when you feel better you can start doing something, there should be a reevaluation ideally uh, to say, all right, you're now ready uh, to do things because we all know athletes and they'll, they'll tell you they're ready long before they actually are. Uh, so that's one thing. So yes, when the athlete is then medically cleared, and that's pretty clear in the consensus statement, is to say when they're medically cleared uh, to start uh, back to activity, that they don't just go straight back into competition, that there actually is a progression. Uh, there's an example given in the, in the Zurich uh, paper and on the, um, <clears throat> the SCAP3 card about just an example, but it's not meant to be, uh, you know, it's, not, it's meant to be an example or a guideline. It's not meant to be a template that everybody has to follow. So the principle that's laid out in there is more important. And the principle is that there is a graded stepwise progression with it with 24 hours between steps so that there's an opportunity to see how the person actually responds. Because some people will just sail through the progression no problem. And you know, a, a four to five day progression is perfectly appropriate. And the, the principle is that it's you know light aerobic exercise and then harder aerobic exercise and then higher intensity exercise and then introducing movement and coordination and, and skills uh, back into the sporting activity before getting into an environment where they actually have to do everything at the same time, which is high exertion and concentrate and be at risk of, of potentially having another concussion. And so you want the person to prove to 
you know, the medical staff and their coach and, and actually to themselves that they actually are ready to go back to, to participate in, in sport again. Uh, and that, that, that progression is very important in order to see uh, if anything changes. And for example, if it doesn't go smoothly and people have a bit of a setback, they may feel that they have symptoms or notice something not right as they're exercising, but they may not. They may notice it later that day or they may notice it when they wake up the next morning. And that's why we like 24 hours between each step because there is this evolving injury delayed effect, metabolic effect in the brain that, that they may get to step three and they wake up the next morning and think, you know, that, that wasn't very good because now I feel bad again. And the principle then is you step back to the previous level that was not provocative and do that again. And if you're okay, then you step forward again. And, you know, because some time has passed, um, and we're talking about, as you said, the uncomplicated, if you will, uh, concussion where they're better, they feel better within a week and can progress, progress back to sport over four or five days. Um, that's perfectly appropriate, I think. Now, moving to the one that doesn't do so well, this is a great chance to share the new material um, I understand related to the vestibular apparatus and uh, what's happening there as far as treatment goes. Well, if you look at the people who are not better, um, again, in the consensus statement, one of the principles is that, that that probably needs to be managed by somebody that is more expert in sport concussion because there's a number of things to come into play, a whole bunch of things to come into play because in that 30% of people that are not better by 10 days, um, there may be other things going on. It may simply be a slower recovery from a typical uncomplicated scenario, but there may also be other components that are actually in a way um, roadblocks to recovery. And one of the ones that, that looks like it has some significant problem, promise is around this issue of cervical vestibular rehabilitation. So uh, a number of people in that category are going to have persistent headaches, neck pain, dizziness. And in this issue of the BGSM where the consensus statement is, is uh, published, uh, in the April issue. It also contains the critical review papers that form the background for the consensus, but it also has the abstracts of the new research that just was coming out at the time of the meeting. It hasn't yet been you know, in manuscript form and published yet. Uh, and there's an important uh, paper in there um, that Catherine Schneider was lead author on that I think is important because I was on the paper too, so I'm a little biased there. There's my full disclosure. Um, <clears throat> but she's a, a, a physiotherapist that um, and just completed her, her PhD. This was her dissertation work, uh, and was really, I think, a landmark uh, uh, study because it was a it was an, an RCT, randomized control trial, in a small number of people, 15 people per group. But the the selection criteria were anybody who had persistent, meaning more than 10 days worth of neck pain, dizziness, or headache, and they only had to have one of the three. And by going through a neck and vestibular retraining program rehabilitation. Uh, 11 of the 15 people in the treatment group were better and only one in the control group was better. And there's actually a second study that hasn't come out yet, but what, what's interesting in the follow-up is we then did a crossover. So we took the people in the control group and gave them the same treatment and it didn't work very good. Only 30, so I think it worked out to 70% in the treatment group in the, in the early stage in the, in the study that was presented got better. When they had it later, when they started it eight weeks later, um, only 30% improved. So there, again, there seems to be a neuroplasticity, if you will, effect, I think. That would be my interpretation, which is an interpretation. Because I don't have evidence to back that up in a way. But if the effect of this treatment is better between 10 days and 8 weeks than it is after 8 weeks, it tells us that instituting 
this type of therapy, uh, it may be really important in terms of its timing. And um, so that'll be the, the next uh, the next piece of evidence that we'll they'll be publishing on that. But the whole idea here is that you know if there's a neck component to the injury and that's left untreated, likely other symptoms are going to have a harder time improving. If there's a vestibular balance component to it and that's left untreated, uh, because that is treatable, then again other components, concentration and memory and other things may have a delayed recovery as well. And uh, so I think the idea or the, the principle that really people agreed on in the consensus statement was, all right, if you're not improving, let's do something earlier rather than waiting until until you then have either less effective treatment would be one possibility, or we certainly see in people who are then going on to sort of three months where you have the, the meet criteria for a post-concussion syndrome, you also then start to get a whole bunch of other things that are happening from mood changes and depression and, and other affect uh, that comes from people not being able to function in their normal life, uh, you know, for months on end, and I, I think that's a very critical um, evolution in the thinking around sport concussion. Is that is that there's a shifting of gears? Rest physically, cognitively for the first week to ten days. Most people will be better. The ones that aren't, uh, we need to do something, uh, and and it's probably better to begin doing that earlier rather than later. Very interesting. And as we come towards a close, winner, because I know you have to go. The issue of neuropsychological testing, just in a nutshell, and we'll leave something for Paul McCrory to do on his podcast as well. But um, what's the new sort of short version on the role of neuropsychological testing for um, clearing people for play? So I don't think there's a lot that's changed from the previous consensus statement that way. I think the um, one of the one of the things that that um, there's some newer evidence emerging is that now that we have so much baseline data. Um, to give us normative ranges for neuropsychological testing, it may not be as important to be doing baseline testing on all athletes the way that we really made a big effort to do over the last, you know, well, even say five years. That that uh, you know, running kids through uh, formal neuropsychological testing routinely uh, <clears throat> may not be as much value in the interpretation of a test should they get injured. It's probably ideal to have that but not as critical as it was in the past. And, and otherwise, the principles remain much the same. That, that you know, it, It's more an issue of, of what type of testing is appropriate. So for, <clears throat> for clubs, teams, organizations where they have resources available and they have an infrastructure to deliver it, doing formal neuropsychological testing, either with a neuropsychologist or with a computerized battery that's interpreted by a neuropsychologist is, is you know, state-of-the-art, right? that's the, the best. But that in, in situations, sports, leagues, countries, etc., where they don't have those resources, then using something like the SCAT-3, which is much more, more of a crude tool, uh, you could say it's more of a sideline evaluation, but it has in there some cognitive testing components like the SAC, this one, the standardized assessment of a concussion, that, that is appropriate to use. Um, and you can even use that as a baseline evaluation if, if you feel that's important in the context of, of the sport. And uh, so, so not a huge change, probably not as much change as there is in some of the other principles we've already talked about. And I don't want to put you on the spot about Sidney Crosby, so you won't be speaking about him as a physician and uh, just speaking as someone you know, who watches from the media, say, just from what, what can we learn as media people from the Sidney Crosby you know, situation? And it got a lot of pre- press and may well have helped in this field, may not have, but let's just comment, if you please can comment on that without 
not sort of giving away any medical confidence and obviously not speaking as his physician but just speaking as what the regular person can learn from what was public available mm-hmm. on the Sydney Cosby um, scenario just as an example yeah well I think one thing it's done is it's made people realize that you know stars are not immune to this injury and that it can be prolonged in its recovery and that it's difficult and um, I think that's that's part of what's led people to realize this is not a trivial injury you know how can how can the best player in the world miss so much time and and how can the public miss watching a guy like that play who's an artist in the game um, <clears throat> and you know this is a guy who's very motivated to play and, and wants to play and is excellent at it and uh, and yet he's been sidelined with that injury for a significant period of time so so it's not an injury to ignore um, there's some speculation that he may have had a couple of blows in a row and maybe that contributed to it and I won't comment on the speculation but I, I think it raises the question that you know repeated injury is not good and and we you know ignoring Sidney Crosby completely we have lots of other examples from other athletes where where you know having one concussion after the other in close sequence um, seems to to prolong recovery you know getting the brain injured while it's still while it's already recovering from previous injury is not good for the brain I don't think anybody would argue with that and that and that's why um, two things are important one is detecting the injury and uh, and the second is ensuring that there's appropriate recovery and a progressive return to play, like we already talked about earlier in this podcast, um, are going to be the things that are going to that are going to reduce the risk of a re-injury. Uh, and then you know the other is is around the issue of, of timing when you do go back to play. Uh, if if it's a question of it's the end of the season, and I can get back for one more game, and the athlete's pushing to do that versus waiting until the next season. There's no question in my mind that the risk of injury next year is going to be a lot less than the injury, the risk of injury next week. And uh, so where there's a question around that, certainly where the athlete has a history of multiple concussions, I'm, as a clinician, much more conservative about giving them a window of time where the re-injury risk is low. So even if we think they're, quote, recovered, you know, if they can go a month after they're recovered without getting another hit to their head, that's a very good thing for their brain. And, and I think that the message for the clinicians is that really sit down and talk to your patient and, and, and if appropriate, the parents or even the coach to make an intelligent decision about what's their re-injury risk and the fact that the re-injury risk actually goes down with time and, and making a smart decision about when to go back to play on that basis. Fantastic, minute. Let's leave it there. It's a very clear message. It's been great to have your time and uh, I know BJSM listeners love opportunity to listen to people like you who are the absolute world leaders and who have made a tremendous contribution in research and in clinical delivery and here we see in in behavior change in legislation so congratulations on what you've got done and thanks for joining this BJSM podcast it's a pleasure and you're listening to professor Widemay Wisser obviously he's at the brain injury initiative at the Hotchkiss Brain Institute now you may also want to check Michelle Sterling's podcast because she has some interesting material relating to neck injuries and uh, whiplash and there's some resonance in the things that Winner was talking about in relation to treating the neck and also have a look at Mike Evans nice video animation about concussion which provides very useful information um, for parents and kids it's a video that's aimed at kids to educate them to implement some of these concussion principles we just talked about and those links are on the uh, BJSM page Thanks for joining this BJSM podcast. Follow us on Twitter at BJSM underscore BMJ for regular updates. And please share these interesting podcasts with your friends.
For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.